Okay, well, you can imagine on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, that you put a lot of seeking into God. What do we speak on? So how do you approach it? So last night I was at a lady's home who's Jewish, and she was having a Seder. And it's several hours of going through the Passover, and we were in the middle of her Seder. And when she got to the Passover lamb, then the Lord spoke to me what I would be speaking on. So I was glad when I got home about 11 last night and uh, started working on something called the binding of Isaac. Now, the binding of Isaac is actually a word in Hebrew. It's ah-hadah, and it actually means the binding of Isaac. Now, when you talk about this scene in the Bible, Christians don't call it this. You're going to hear a Christian say, oh, oh, I know what that is. It's the sacrifice of Isaac. But the Jews, they refer to this, and when they study this passage, they study it as the binding of Isaac. So let's just say in Genesis 22, this is kind of an unsettling nature to the story. So we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll study this piece, and let's see where this takes us. Because last night during the Passover, I got my phone, I started taking notes, but actually the Lord began speaking to me about this concept. So it came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. Now that's a good way to answer God when he speaks to you. Here I am. And then verse two is the corker that shall never be forgotten in biblical history. And God said, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Genesis 22, 2. So now we're at the part of why this makes this story so troublesome, unsettling. So the very first words of this story, it raises, I would say, so many questions, but also so much emotion. Because the first thing you're asking yourself, I can't imagine God asking something like this of me. That's why, as unusual as Abraham's story is, and where you could make some points with Abraham of, well, he failed this test, or he did this or that, it's this story that causes you to say, yes, he was the father of our faith. You know, because there's so many other things you could say, I can't believe he would do that to his wife. I can't believe he would have done this. I can't believe he didn't have faith here. But because of this story, everybody's confident of, I can't imagine this kind of a test being put on us. And so it raises these emotions. And so the first thing you're asking yourself is how could God command a father to kill his son? And let's just use a different words. How could he command that Abraham offer his son? You know, that goes against the very nature of who God is. You've got to remember how hard it was to conceive this son. It's not like this son came easily for him. It's odd to me to think, oh my goodness, you know, it took this many years, and now God's asking for this son back. You know, you're saying he's the author of life. He's the one who gives it. And yet here he's asking Abraham, go and take your son and offer your son. One thing that's really strong in Judaism, if you get to know the culture, especially in Israel, is the sacredness they feel for every life. You can't imagine what kind of negotiations they'll go into if even the body of one of their soldiers is left in another country. Like they'll trade some of the worst terrorists you can imagine, the worst 
uh, spies they've had in their country, they'll trade three or four of them for the body of someone. In those terroristic attacks, I've talked to the kids that, and I mean kids, 18 years of age, that they have to clean up every single piece of the body. It's all sacred. The blood is sacred. The, the life is sacred. So here you have the father of the Jewish race, the father of all Christians, and you have something like this take place about how much his son is loved, how sacred this life is, how unique this life is, and it just comes out of the blue in this request. When we think about this, we can say, well, part of it's the historical setting. In Abraham's time, his child's life, it went unquestioned. The father had that much right over his child. Now, maybe some of y'all have been mad enough at your kid. <laughs> to say, that I brought you this world yeah. We all think in those terms of uh, <laughs> on a bad day. <laughs> There's this question, and you're asking, what's the age of the son? There's so many questions that go down with this story. The binding of Isaac. But I'm going to say, second, Isaac's deliverance was woven into the divine purpose. Is there a possibility that the resurrection was understood from the beginning in some sort of a shadow way? In some sort of a way that Abraham so believed that God was the giver of life that he somehow saw resurrection in this request? Is there a possibility is there something that Abraham knew? There's some mystery I'm not quite getting. Talk about the trust level between Abraham and God. To say, I trust your character so much. I know there's something more to this than what I'm understanding. Because some people read it so bleak and so dark. And they see it as the negative aspect of the request. But I'm throwing out that there comes a point in your faith with the Lord and you so trust that he loves your son, your daughter more than you love them. You so trust that he's the author of life. You so trust the goodness of God that you know his love is greater, his compassion is greater. This will change your prayer life if you enter into this. And so many people argue, well, you know, usually in your life that you get your hardest test over with quick. But Abraham has his at the end of his life. You're not expecting in your old age this happens to you, that you're called upon for this test. But in many ways, your tests in life build. And so they're steps of faith. Abraham was completely ready for this test. And he had come to a place of intimacy with God and understanding God enough that when God asked this, he was ready for it. He was willing. And it had to be that Abraham understood something about God that we're not picking up in the story. So if this horrifies you, this story or this request, it should. But it also shows that you're not there yet. God will lead you in the request, not so he can do something brutal. That's the very thought that goes against the nature of God. Because when you're young, you worry would God kill what I love the most? Is God going to take it away from me? I mean, you have all these conflicting emotions inside of you. You think of perhaps God is the one doing all these evil things to me. But I'm going to say this is the picture of your revelation of the character of God is being played out in Abraham's life. 
that the more he walked with God, the more he knew there's something I'm not seeing in this. There's something about God that I trust him more than I even trust the sound of the words of this request upon my ears. So if you're horrified, don't panic. You're young. Because the very nature of the request is horrifying. But the very essence of the fact that Abraham was able to pass this test shows you that you will come to a place in your faith with the Lord if you walk with him long enough that you will understand his nature and his goodness to where you're going to be willing to do anything he requests of you. So I'm going to say gently, yes, woven into this story from verse 1 and 2 where the request is made, Isaac's deliverance is woven into the very beginning of it. In the very sense that when Christ's death is spoken of, it's the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. That it's in the very beginning, the redemption story. This is a story of redemption. Talk about a sign to the Jews and a gift to us is this story. So I want you to think about, walk it through of what's taking place here. So the very fact that this story, this horrible request, this thing that God has required of Abraham is woven into it, and the very fact that it penetrates Abraham's heart, to me that's the essential part of the story. If you want to know what you're supposed to get out of this story, is you're supposed to understand how bad this hurts. You're supposed to understand how deep this penetrates. Because sometimes God can do something for you, like what this whole holiday here means. That we go through the Good Friday, we go through Saturday of the confused emotions, and then Sunday we see what the Lord was doing. Most people think that it started on Passover of Thursday, and you see Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You have no emotion to it until you've walked those steps yourself. And so this is the ability to put yourself into it and to feel what it would be like. Are we willing to do what he did? And so this is part of your growth. So temptation says to you, if it's truly where God tempted Abraham, that's, you know, some versions because of the word they'll say it's tempted. Usually temptation says, do this pleasant thing. Do something that's very pleasant to you and do not be hindered by the fact that it's wrong. Well, that doesn't fit this. The testing or the proving says, do something that's right. Do something that's obedience, but don't be hindered by the fact that it's painful. You see the reverse? Temptation leads you to the pleasurable and don't care about the consequences. But proving of your faith leads you to doing something that is obedience and you're willing to not be hindered by the fact that it's painful to you. So the very fact that this is painful means you're getting the point of the story. Like you can't even begin to understand this particular holiday, or especially this day that we celebrate today of the resurrection. You can't even begin to understand it until you understand the pain of the gift given. You can't begin to have the gratitude or the appreciation until you feel what was felt as it was given. 
So Abraham's devotion to God trumps one of the most foundational principles in a parent's heart. And it's the obligation of a parent to preserve the life of their child. This is the deepest, deepest principle of parents. The number one thing you do as a couple, as a mom and a dad, is preserve that child's life at all costs, even to your own. And the ironic part is the age of Abraham and, let's say, the promise of Isaac. Like, he had his whole life ahead of him. He hadn't become who Isaac was going to become. He hadn't accepted his uniqueness. He's going to be killed during his potential part of his life. There was a wreck in Brownwood, and it was recent, and I was listening to Mom's take on the wreck, and the son was driving, and the older man was 89 years of age, and the son was killed, but the 89-year-old lived. And Mother said that the thought going on in the 89-year-old man's mind, even though he was deeply injured, was, I wish I had died instead of my son. Like, my son still had his life ahead of him. And here I lived at 89, and my son perishes. And so this is what you're feeling with Abraham here. Couldn't the request be me instead of him? I mean, my life's over. I'm a hundred and something years of age. Why not? Why take the youth? And in understanding the concept of sacrifices, you know, a lot of times when we sacrifice to God, that's how we think of You know, it's kind of like the can drive for the poor. You give the lima beans. You give that can of food that it's expired in your cabinet. You know, Malachi got in a lot of trouble when as a prophet he was telling the people, why are you giving the three-legged sheep to God? Why are you giving the old one? And when you see God request a sacrifice, he asks for perfect. He asks for unblemished. He asks for the youth. He asks for the young. And it's going to symbolize the fact that the sacrifice is cut off in their youth. You look at how long Jesus spent upon the earth and you see it's the fact that it's young. You know, where it would make more sense to us if we were reasoning, let's just go give that old one in the herd. Let's give that three-legged one. I'm ready to give it. But what we don't realize is we're passing judgment on the worth of the sacrifice of Jesus, of what God really gave. And that's why I always believe that when God calls you, It's a very wrong motive to say, well, I'm going to serve God when I'm old. I'm going to chance it out. And if I can play my odds just like the thief on the cross, right before I die, (laughs) I'll make some negotiation with God and hopefully just slip into heaven. Just hopefully just barely make it in, smelling like smoke, I'll make it into heaven. (laughs) That's not a sacrifice. That's you just trying to get what you can get right at the end. I don't know how that goes over on Judgment Day. Well, Lord, you did it for the thief. I was hoping you would do it for me. I played it as close to the gray line as I can. But the sacrifice of you is giving him your youth. It's serving God in your youth. It's serving God when you're young. That's the point of the story is that the old man doesn't die. It's going to be the young one. So this concept or this request of what God is asking of Abraham It goes against the very thing that God put within parents. The trying to preserve that child's life is something God put in parents. That's why I think he did it the way he did it. I think he made a woman and a man so that that child has a chance to be loved by two people. And just in case something goes wrong where 
accidentally you lose one of the parents, you've still got one parent to love you. And then horrors of all things, if something goes wrong with the parents, he gives two backup sets of parents. He gives those grandparents. And somewhere in there, there should be love and there's four more people that could possibly love you or preserve you or save you. And that's what I see it is that God is so determined that that child be loved that he surrounds you with people, adults, that can take care of you and raise you and love you. That's what family's about. It's this very principle. And here you have it with Abraham. God's man, the one that obeyed God the most. And I would say in some ways it seems to go against the value system of the very average, decent sort of fellow. There's something just wrong with this. So at the same time that I've made a case that there's something right with this, that there's something we don't know, it's the mystery, it's the invisible God. At the same time, there's something that it bothers our natural mind. It goes against our inclination. I don't even have to say our carnal inclination, our very God-given inclination to save your child. And this is the setting. So would anyone like to comment at this point? I want to give a completely different perspective. Okay. And, you know, we have a tendency to only see things through our own lens. Mm -hmm. And in the time we're at now. And I think a lot, like with the Jewish people, it's we make it so much about everything here instead of here. Make everything about something horizontal yes, rather than vertical. And so because it's really about Abraham being obedient to God. And he already knew that Isaac was already a gift. He's already a miracle. I mean, he's 100 years old. His wife is 90. And so he had this relationship with God. It's a vertical him and God. It doesn't change just because it comes on earth or comes into being. It's something holy. Like, it's a relationship with a holy one. Like, in other words, let me read you the scripture that made me think of this. So he has him tied up. I hope I'm not jumping ahead of you, Angie. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. So he says the same thing that he said to him, to the Lord previously. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. It's not between him and Isaac. It's between Abraham and God. And we have a tendency to, once God gives us what we want, we take it all for ourselves without recognizing who gave it to us. That's the mistake I think we make. And we make the mistake to such a point that we feel like we've got to make all the decisions concerning this relationship and we don't continuously go back to God, the one who gave it to us. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. Because that's really what is going to be your takeaway from this concept is that the one thing to get your horizontal relationships correct is you have to get your vertical relationship correct. Yes. Like, you can't do this thing where you're given Isaac and you so clutch it mm -hmm. that you forget God, that you don't bring God into your Isaac. 
that's our tendency to do it because once God gives it, we're afraid of losing it. And God had Abraham face his fear of losing him. He faced his fear in a way that you can't even imagine it. And I dare say, and I think everyone will agree with me that's on the other side of it, there's no child here that can understand this story, only a parent. A child can mentally understand it, but they can't emotionally understand this story. No one can understand this. You have to have a child to be able to understand what's being asked of Abraham. And it's the epitome... It's the highest thing that you can imagine this parent-child love. That's why when God explains his nature to you, listen to how Jesus does it. He doesn't explain it between a husband and a wife. He doesn't explain it as the love between friends. You know, all the different types of loves you can have. And I think in our modern society, we think the romantic love is the strongest. But when God describes the fact of how he loves us, that Jesus says it's like this, He says it's a parent to a child. And in some ways you can make the case that that's the strongest love. You're not going to ask him for a piece of bread and he gives you a rock, a stone. You're not going to ask God for an egg and he gives you a snake. You're not going to ask him for a piece of fish and he gives you a scorpion. If your father's being evil, don't even play these kind of mental tricks with you. How much more shall a heavenly father not play games with you of giving you something poisonous, evil, when you're asking for something good. And then I think he takes it a step further because he could have just used the idea of poison, harmful, versus asking for something good. But he says that God won't even give you a stone when you ask for bread. A stone is benign. So it's saying that God won't even give you a nothing burger. He won't even give you a nothing when you're asking him for something good. And the strongest relationship that he could think of on earth so we could understand it is father to child. He gives that strong understanding that this is the strongest love that he has built into it so that you possibly could understand God is not mentally playing games with you. So that father who's not playing games with you walks you through this. And I think we have to all walk through this understanding here. I think that what we have in life that we clutch and hold on to, we have to lay it on the altar for it to ever become protected. You know, I've told you my story that, you know, my mom had mental torment for eight years and we had a miraculous deliverance. You know, when my dad prayed for my mom, you can't imagine to not have her for eight years and then him pray for her and in two and a half hours I have a mother back. Like that's the kind of miracles you want. Those are instant. So what was odd about what happened inside of me was eight years of not having that constant presence. You know, the way that my dad had handled it, he used the grandparents. He took mother and me and my brother over to my grandmother's and my grandfather. And so we really didn't feel the trauma of my mom going through this as much as she could have because we had stability around us with our grandparents. But when mom came back, In two and a half hours, I don't even have words to describe to you to have a non-functioning mother to having a completely normal mom. I told you that's why everybody came to see us because my dad had done the miraculous. He had prayed for his wife and the power of God had hit her and everything that had happened with her with that Buddhist lady, that evil dark spirits left her. She had manifested and then my mom was back. But what it did to me emotionally 
was it scared me. It scared me now I'm going to lose my parents. Now, isn't that funny how the psyche is? I hadn't had my mom for eight years. But then when this happens, then I become petrified I'm going to lose my mother. And having been a normal child, you know, straight A in school, I started not wanting to leave home. I started looking out the window to see if I could see my mom. The very fact I got her, and that's what you're saying with Isaac, the very fact that you get the promised son, then I suddenly was like, I couldn't go through the pain if I lost my parents. So I remember standing on the porch with the Lord. You know, my mom's back. I'm maybe 11. On Lamont Street, I'm standing there, and the Lord says to me, Give me your parents. And I tell him, No, I will not give you my parents. I'm doing exactly what Steph said. He had given me my parents. My mother could have been put in an institution. My dad had every right to divorce the family, leave. This was not what he intended his first decade of marriage. He had come from an unhappy home. He married my mom because she is happy. <laughs> she was happy. Her family's happy. He married mother's family because they're happy. And then mother turned unhappy on him. And I told dad, why did you not leave us? And he said, well, he loved my mother. And he just kept putting one step in front of the other. He loved the Lord. And he wasn't going to do it. So here my dad stuck with us. And now I'm like, I don't want to lose this. And I call it white knuckle grip. I want you to think what you have in your life that you're gripping it so hard your knuckles are white. Uh, that's how hard I was gripping my parents. To the point I became non-functional. I couldn't let mom out of sight. And so at that point... The Lord kept telling me, give me your parents. And I told the Lord, I knew this about him. I don't know how you instinctively know this. But I told him, if I give them to you, you'll kill them. <laughs> Isn't it funny? This is the steps of faith. That's why if you're sweating over this story thinking, if I give them to them, they'll be killed in a wreck. <laughs> God will be testing my very soul. So I said, no, Lord, I will not give them to you. Yeah, you'll kill them. And so... God is very repetitive. And so he said it to me over and over and it sounded like the filibustering on the Senate floor. I mean, it was over and over and over. He just kept telling me, give me your parents. Well, 45 minutes of me hearing God tell me, give me your parents. It wasn't a compulsive voice. It was the voice of my father telling me, give them. And he was not going to let go of me till I had done it. I finally just fall out in my front yard. I'm laying in the grass and I told the Lord, okay, you can have them. They're yours. And I thought, I've surrendered them to the car accident. It's because God's driving me to this place. And when I said to God, you can have them, he whispered in my ears. This is the beginning of me learning to hear the voice of God. And he said, now they're safe. And I learned something about the divine nature. And then I got well. So you see this thing in the human heart. And Steph landed it, but... You know, it's what took place inside of me was I did not trust him. I trusted myself more than I trusted him with them. You know, they had taken me quickly to the psychiatrist that my mother was seeing, and nothing fixed it. Because a lot of what we're going to mental doctors for is for things that are spiritual problems. And what was wrong with me was this. But I had to walk this steps in my youth. I had to walk down this of what Abraham did in his 
old age. And there's no sense that you don't. Because like my dad said, if you don't have your own experience, borrow the Bibles. Get it from Abraham. He said, borrow Abraham's faith. You can read the end of the story here. You can go see a play and see it winds up good. So the very thing that happens here is the fact that it hurts. And let's talk about why it hurts. There's two things that are said here. In Genesis 22.2, I want you to look how God says it. Now, I don't know if you're going to argue with God, but I want you to see the ascending growth here. I saw this. Take your son. Okay, so the first problem is it's that parent-child relationship. The second thing is it says take your only son. In some translations, it says your only begotten son. Now, what do you hear in your head when you hear Abraham's only begotten son? Type and shadow. Type and shadow. So he refers to Abraham's only son. Now, you could argue with this theoretically and say it's not your only son. Uh (laughs) How dare, you know, God, did you forget Ishmael? Or was he so out of your mind? Or, you know, they sent him on his way. (laughs) But he calls him his only son. And that's why I think God was so angry with Abraham to have had the Hagar experience because he wasn't wanting to mess up this only son thing. The concept was for Abraham to have an only begotten son. That was the idea behind it. And so God had put into this storyline that Abraham would have an only begotten son. So that's the emphasis, and you can just write down John 1.18. The clause, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. Wow, you're going to find this phrase all through the Bible. The only begotten Son. So it expresses the fact of what this means to the Father and the Godhead. And it shows that the Son understands everything that the Father thinks, You know how your son is. He gets you. He gets all your advice. I mean, do fathers give advice? (laughs) The son smiled because the advice. You think of this of he gets all the father's counsels. You know, the father's going to put into him everything that he's learned in life so that the son doesn't have to go through those hard times. So Jesus said, there's no one that understands the father but me. Because he's full of the wisdom of the Father. That's how we are on earth. And he enjoys the next aspect, and that's all the affections. There's nothing that means anything to him like his son. That is something that is so dear to your heart. Now, maybe you're living your life through him. Maybe it's the closest thing on earth to being you. So when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son this is genesis 22 2 it says your son your only begotten son and then he says the son that you love the beloved son so you see the progression here you see the your son it's your only son which makes him very special even with jesus where he's raising that lady's son from the dead he stops the funeral And never before do you see this. Usually you have a completely different setup for a miracle where Jesus doesn't take it on himself just to do it. But it says he put a stop to the miracle. He stopped him bringing the guy on this coffin-like thing that he stops it and he puts his hand on it and he says, 
This is the only son of a widow. You talk about God intimately aware of our relationships. Like, this is the only son of a widow. Like, she doesn't have anything else. When you ask me the compassion scripture in the Bible, that's it. That the only son of a widow. And that's the point of this. Take your son. It's like God is making it clear. Your son, your only begotten son, the son you love. Only someone that you're intimately involved with can talk to you like this. You've come to know God pretty well by this point where he can talk to you in these terms. Otherwise, you would say this is cruel. But this isn't cruel among deeply connected people, deeply connected to the Lord. Once you've come to know him, you know something's up. So the beloved son, the sonship anointing. So let me say something here. You'll see that in our terms we'd say that following God is risky. Very risky. And the risky part of it is a partial obedience. Let's just take what we would call a modern day story. And you would take where God said, all right, sacrifice your son, your only begotten son, the one that you love. They may get up to some point before they're actually tying him up and have the knife drawn. And it would be, can you believe God told me to kill my son? And it would just blow up from there. Yeah. So I would encourage you to get with the Lord and ask God if you've done any partial obedience somewhere. Because that partial obedience can completely change your theology and it's not supposed to. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times God is not going to put you in this position until he knows there's a really good chance that you're going to pass the test. Like we ask for a lot of things. But sometimes we're not in the position of complete obedience with God to actually receive the blessing. Does that make sense? I would say Steph is 100% right because the crossliners who have left me that are jaded or twisted or angry are the ones that did partial obedience. Like you feel like... Or they the, were ungenuine. Well, they did half of what God said. Yeah. We do half of what God asked and expect 100% results from Him. Yes. And... They're the ones on Oprah now saying, but it didn't work. <laughs> well, but also, it's, can you believe God asked me to sacrifice my yeah. son and he's my only... It's messed up. But you've got to get yourself to a place where you're ready to pass the tests if you want the big blessings. Abraham got hugely blessed. Part of what I'm saying is God is not going to set you up for failure so if you're asking and asking and asking and it's not happening for you, maybe you're not to a place yet where you can pass the test. Like you need to work on something different other than just asking God. You need to work here. Vertical. There's not enough complete obedience. There's not enough fear of the Lord. He knows you're going to fail the test, so he's not going to put you through it. And I would do what she's saying is start telling the Lord, Lord, this is where I'm at with you. I think sometimes we try to act a little more spiritual and we won't admit it to him. I would tell him, I'm still at the stage that I think you'll kill him. I mean, to be honest with you, God, I think that you're that kind of a God. He already knows, but you need to know that you know. It's like me on the steps of my house. I was very honest with God on the porch. No, I know what kind of God you are. I think the best thing is to ask God, help get me there. Mm -hmm. Like, I've told the Lord a thousand times in my journey, I need to be here, and I'll point to something in Scripture or something that I know the Lord's leading me towards, but I tell him, I'm here. 
So you're going to have to show me how to get from here to here. And that honesty with the Lord will mature you so much quicker than trying to act like something you're not or forever hold on to the little bit you have. And so I would just be genuine with the Lord and say, I'm not even on step one. Don't even say those words to me. You might be on the step of your faith of just believing God to have a son when you don't have one. You know, you can be on steps of faith. It's not like you don't have any faith. You're in the stage of just believing God will even give you this to begin with. Like, you may be completely in the area of loss or or never have had God provide you anything. So I would say the first step is believe for the son. But then Steph's taking you way to the end of the ball game to talk to you about after he gives you something, are you clutching it so much that you can't have fellowship with God with what he's given you? That you can't trust him, that you're so afraid. You've got a theology of one power source. You think God is the one who gives and the one who kills. You don't realize that there is an enemy that works against the promises of God, that Anytime you're given a miracle, the devil tries to steal your miracle. Mm -hmm. Constantly, like when Abraham offered the sacrifice, what comes down? The vultures try to take the sacrifice. So you have something constantly working against what God gives you. In the Old Testament, we just see glimpses of the warfare. It's not like in the New Testament where it said, when Jesus was killed on Calvary, guess who was doing the dance? The demons said, We defeated God. We killed his son. You see that Satan was gloating, not realizing the cross changed everything. You know, he had got what he thought was a murder that took place in history. And Jesus said he's a murderer from the beginning. You don't see that in the Old Testament. You're seeing a one power source. But why on earth are we as Christians still at the one power source with God? Mm -hmm. The sonship anointing. The request for what's most unique. You know, they say that when Abraham said, would you bless Ishmael, that our soul cries for second best. And you can look over your life and you have some second best in your life. He'll even give promises to the second best in your life. But the goodness of God weaved together for good, even second best. You're seeing everywhere in Abraham's life the promises of God, but this one place God puts his finger on. And you know what he's requiring out of us? He's requiring Abraham not to be a child where everything's given to you, but to be a parent where you're able to give back to God. And that's where you've really become into a relationship. You've come into a relationship with God. You're not like a child of saying, God... I've asked a thousand requests of you. And God, should you not answer one thing I've asked, I'm going to say you're not there and you don't exist. That's how children think of, God, I expect 100% from you and you must answer every prayer I pray. I don't care if it is involving someone else's will, but if you don't give me that answer to prayer, I'm going to say you don't exist. And that's how most Christians look at how God must answer their prayer 100%. But they don't allow God to require 1% from them. Like we expect God to meet our ever demand. That's what prayer is. 100% God, you must do everything I ask of you. See, that proves you don't answer prayer. If you don't do this one thing that matters the most to me. But don't dare turn this tables around on me and ask one thing of me. And this is that maturity test. 
unfortunately, sometimes we have to be a hundred and something years of age before we can even have the faith to let God ask one thing of us. And I want to say an immaturity thing also is, because I've heard this a thousand times, and what it is is people serving people. They will serve other people. There's nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to do that. But they don't serve God. They serve people. And I see it all the time. And it's their justification. I'm serving people. Well, we're supposed to. But where do we serve God? In other words, where are you saying, God, what am I supposed to be doing instead of just kind of doing the, well, I'm making cakes for our fellowship dinner. Well, I'm keeping the nursery. All those things are good and well, but they're a very low level. Well, it comes into the thing that our life becomes more about Abraham and Isaac more than it becomes Abraham and his God. And so you've got to not have God give you something and not realize the giver of all life still had life on his mind, even when it looks like he doesn't. So the next stage of this where he says, your son, and then he says, your only son, then he says, your loved son. This is the request for the beloved son. This is the, the request for what's most unique. We could go down this concept of Adam was the son of God. It tells us that in Luke three thirty-eight, He was the image-bearing son. And then the firstborn son was Israel in Exodus 4.22. He talks about the nation as the firstborn son. But then Jesus fulfilled the beloved son in a way that we can't even imagine of the biblical sense. He was all three of those sons. And when God speaks to him in Matthew 3.17 instead of John 3.16, it's Matthew 3.17. He says, my beloved son in whom I'm very pleased. So this is the sacrifice, if we're believers, or the binding <laughs> of the beloved son. It's the beloved son you walk up the mountain. It's not Ishmael. It's the unique. So a deeper, more profound sense emerges in Jesus because he's the unique son of God. You don't get God's sacrifice until you realize what he gave was what was most unique to him most precious, most beloved. That's why John said, I'm the beloved disciple. <laughs> it's a deeply loved concept. And so God shaped a message in Abraham. And what he shaped in Abraham was John 3:16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's a love gift. But God had, let's say, the maturity that we're lacking where he so loved the world that he was able to give. So this is the test of you so love God, you're able to give. Believe me, this is what it takes to grow in maturity. And this is something you can't force. But if it's never taught, you don't know where you need to go. Otherwise, you'll always clutch. And what you compromise to keep, you'll lose. There's a principle in this world that you cannot get around. When you clutch something, you'll lose it. If you give it to the devil, he'll take it. But if you give it to God, he'll bless it and give it back to you in a better sense. Like he gave me back my parents in a mm. better sense. Like they weren't the, the parents that I had fear over. They were the parents that it was a covenant relationship between God. Like it says, perfect love cast out all fear. God took the fear out of the love. Like, you're not perfected in your love if you have fear. Like, it has to be a covenant. If you gave it, God, 
the enemy's not going to kill it. Like right now, what we're talking about is get the fear out of your love. You say you love this person, but it's fear. You're fear-based. Fear does not please God. You've got to be faith-based with your love. Put that faith in there between you and God and what you most beloved. This will clean up every relationship you got. And have I had to say it a thousand times? Yes. God, you perfect me in your love. And it says that perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves punishment. If you think God's going to punish you, you are still fear-based in your love. Your love's not pure. You've got dirt in your love. You've got something stained. It's not clean love if it's fear-based. And so you have to deal with the fear. And it tells you, the scripture gives you the hint, 1 John 4, 18. The hint in the scripture is fear involves punishment. It's like he's making you face the part of you that doesn't trust him, that you think is not good. God's going to put his finger on where you don't trust. And does it hurt? Yes, and that's the point. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, it says, And because you're sons, God has sent a spirit of his son into your heart. So you have the spirit of the son in your heart that cries, Abba, Father. Actually, the spirit of Jesus in you that can approach God as Daddy God, Abba, 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 Father. And it says that makes you no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir. Some beautiful scriptures here. It's prophesied in Psalm 89, 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings. So this speaks of the Davidic line that there wasn't much of a concept of father God in the Old Testament. But you'll cry, you're my father, you're my God, you're my rock, and then I'll make you the firstborn and the highest. Beautiful words. So near the end and after many years of peaceful, pleasant life of faith, then Abraham has to take this higher step. So this last difficult experience, some would call it terrible experience, turned into being his crowning achievement. Abraham had failed a number of tests, but he would stand on this one and secede. But let's look at the steps of Abraham. I want you to see Abraham's reaction in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac. He split the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and he went to the place which God had told him. Does that not smack of obedience? He didn't sleep in late. He rose early. Usually when you're dreading something, you don't get up early. He saddled his donkey. He took two men with him. He took Isaac. He split the wood. He arose and he went to where God told him. So that's Abraham's reaction. And that's where you face something God tells you with uh, courage. That's the risk. The fact that God's asking you to give what you love the most. You know, Jackie Carpenter is someone who wrote Mom and said, your book changed my life. She actually found it in a rack at CVS, and the Lord had told her get into the Psalms because what happened is her son was in a situation in Georgia where he had built a lot of construction projects. A guy was coming in, stealing the copper out of the construction projects. Uh, the sheriff's department had told him, you know, you're going to have to take care of your own projects. We don't have enough to 
you know, we circle it occasionally, but we can't really protect him. So three times he had been robbed of all the copper. So they told him, we'll back you up, just stand there with a gun, and then we'll get to the place. Well, he did, but something went down wrong because two or three men came to get the copper that night, and the gun went off, and it killed the guy that was stealing. Well, her son put the man in the car, rushed him to the emergency room, but he didn't make it. So her son's on trial for murder. Well, Jackie had come from a very influential family in Georgia, but she said she hit a place that money couldn't buy what she needed now. And she was very angry. She was hoping the guy who had, had told her son that would stand up to it, but he would not admit that that's what her son had been told. So everything centered around that son. She told the Lord, if you get me out of this, she said, I'll tell the world about you. So she actually made a movie about this. And Mother's book, she said, what saved her mentally. But she had a nervous breakdown because... Before she found Mother's book, she was getting up and getting on the Internet every night studying the laws. And so she would study deep into the night. She was looking into the Stand Your Ground laws. I mean, it's an interesting movie. We went to the premiere in Atlanta. But she said she just mentally had never faced something she couldn't make happen. You know how it is when you get to the end of yourself. A lot of times it does end you up in the hospital. It does end you up completely depleted, and she just had a nervous breakdown over this trial with her son. You know, they started the plea bargain stage. You had a child. She was just angry, every bit of her. And she tells this scene that she went into a church because she couldn't find peace. And she looked up and she saw a cross. And she said, I screamed at God, you may have been willing to give your son, but I'm not willing to give mine. <laughs> and slammed the door. Every parent's been there. They may not see it the way that she says it, but no parent even thinks they can do this. And so her journey was the nervous breakdown, she said, was soon coming after that. You can imagine. She had just let God have it. Her pastor came to see her and he said, uh, Jackie, I think you need to get into the Psalms to get better. <laughs> like you need something you know how it is the psalms kind of help any of us if you're having a bad time get into the psalms i'm sure the guy gave her the best wisdom he had of jackie get into the psalms so she was going to get her medications that they were putting her on and she was at cbs filling her order and there in the chosen book rack stood mom's book psalm 91 for military i think they tell her you can't take your bible into the courtroom and there's a unique scene in the movie she buys all these Bibles and tears so many one out of them. I mean, like, she wants the real page of the Bible. And there's a scene where everyone's waving the Psalm 91 in the courtroom. And, and it's waving in the air, and you just see the whole courtroom scene. And it's Psalm 91, she said, they tore out of there. So what ends up happening at that point, she was telling us the movie was so dramatic and done to life that when you hear the courtroom scenes she said all you could hear was that her son was guilty <laughs> that they did such a good job showing what a mess he was in legally just watching it so they had to refilm to get that exactly right when they cleared her son of all counts of guilt 
Now, the boy had not meant for that gun to discharge. It wasn't that kind of a death. He had picked him up, carried him himself to the emergency room. Her son today is a pastor, and they have the movie. Things sometimes go down in life messy. They don't go down the way you intended it. It happens on all sides. You know, it's not what you would have wanted. You know, you've got people doing the wrong thing, and they set themselves up, and it's, we all understand. You know, Jackie, you'll see her posting on Mom's Facebook a lot. But she literally says, your book saved my life. Because Jackie went from just studying the case law and trying to get him out legally to appealing to a higher court of the Lord. And so even though she told God I wouldn't give my son, God gave her what she needed for her son. And she finally was able to put her son on the altar and give her son to God. And then he gave her an answer and she gave him what she had promised. And she's used her money to, I think she's printed a couple books on it and a movie. And she has a Christian concept of the view and magazines. And it's interesting what all this woman has done. This is the steps that we're in to understand what Abraham was going through. So it does not indicate in any way that Abraham tried to talk God out of this. It's just a very matter-of-fact part of the story. And so as you watch I want us to think about this story in steps. Each step that Abraham walked, each step that Isaac walked, every step of your journey of faith, I want you to move forward in history and think of each step Jesus took, of knowing what you were stepping to, to the point of of me being in the garden where Jesus had cried out to the Lord, is there a different way? I'm negotiating with you. Father, is there a better way we could do this? Is there another option? His soul was grieved to the point of death. On his head, it burst out blood of the sweat of knowing the pressure that would be on him. There was going to be no ram in the thicket. And so Jesus was thinking about each step that he was going to take. But man has to do his part in this story because you're seeing a divine connection being made between man and and God. And so this is the stake or the claim that has to be made on our life. So father and son travel three days to Moriah, to the place of sacrifice where they built an altar. You know, it's important to go where God tells you to, not to just the mountain that's within a day's travel, but three days. Does the three days mean anything to us? If you've been to Moriah, you know, in Jewish tradition, the temple mount where the temple was later built where the sacrifices were offered in commemoration of Al-Qaeda, in commemoration of the binding of Isaac, where they have that rock that Abraham offered Isaac, another religion has grabbed it and put a dome over it. Dome of the rock. Yes, over the top of Abraham offering Isaac. And if you're a believer and you see Golgotha, the place of the skull, it's The two mountains look at each other. Like, they can't 100% say this is Golgotha, but there is the place of the skull, and near it is a tomb that's cut out of the rock, and it had a stone in front of it. I mean, if it's not there, it's very close. They're within a, a few miles of thinking, isn't it interesting that God sent Abraham to Moriah, and he was going to do his son's sacrifice looking at it. Do you see how these two covenant relationship between God and man? And so 
people have different ways of looking at this scripture and interpreting it, but it couldn't have been any more clear to me in Israel that these two mountains must look at each other where God's willingness and our willingness meet. It's the place of the sacrifice. It's the place so clear that they'll say, I can't miss this. It's a central conviction of both the Jewish and the Christians that God has absolute claim over our lives. That's what's in question. It's not the death of Isaac. It's whether God has absolute claim over your life. It's that piece of you that you hang on to and say, I can't do that. And don't think it's hard when the Son of God himself is saying, is there another way out of this? I told you there's six verses on this that if a man will lose his life for my sake, then he'll gain it. But if he tries to gain it, he'll lose it. And I've tried to get around that verse. I've tried to find shortcuts, cheat ways. I don't like that verse. There's nothing about it that your soul's going to like. But I have to say it's in the gospel six times where for God so loved the world's only in there once. And so this is the stake or the claim that has to be made on our life is that God has absolute claim on us. That's the only way truly to be a believer is to say he absolutely claims my life. So you see this season of the year being those steps to get to that point where you can say God really does have me. So Abraham says to the young men, guys, you stop here. He's not going to take them with him. Stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go yonder. Boy, verse 5 is powerful. And we will worship and we will return to you. Does he know what he's saying there? Is this a prediction? We will worship. This place of sacrifice is a place of worship. It's an altar. Look, y'all stop here. Remember Jesus did that with the disciples. Y'all stay here and pray. I'm going further. And then he'd fall on his face and he'd say, God, help me. The groanings of the Spirit. And this is where Abraham says, what I'm doing, I'm doing alone. And then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So he carries whatever he used to start a fire and the knife. But he put the wood on Isaac. What does that symbolize with Jesus? Did, Did he carry the wood? So in the life of denying yourself and take up your cross, you put the wood on your own back. Both men carried the wood that they would be sacrificed on. Look at this word. I would love to see this constructed in the Hebrews. So the two of them walked together. And this is something you do together. That one that you say between you and me, this horizontal relationship, you walk to the place of sacrifice together. And then if these words don't touch your heart, and Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, now there's a lot of words. It's not just Abraham. He spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father, behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for sacrifice? And you know, you could have had Abraham grab his face and say, son, I didn't mean to tell you. You won't believe what God's saying. You know, start sobbing. Where's the lamb? Isaac questions his dad. You know, there's nothing like doing something God's telling you to do and you get that gut punch question. You know how it is when your kid sees through things? Ask that question. 
If there's not emotion in that question. But when the child asks a question that's the most horrid question that could ever be asked on the face of earth. This is the worst, soulish, compassion, emotional, name it, everything you can possibly call this question. And he asks it. You've got to either answer with your feelings or your emotions or you've got to answer it with faith. You've got to be prepared for that question. When you're prepared to walk Mount Moriah, when you're prepared to walk the steps, you've got to be prepared for this question. Because this is the question that will throw you off. Nothing else is going to bother you like this question. But your faith has got to talk. And if Abraham was not ready for this, and he looks his son in his eyes and he says to him, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide. You've got to either answer your horizontal, you're it, I'm so sorry, and I can't imagine being asked to do this and falling apart, or you have to go vertical, and you have to pull it down from heaven. And what Abraham said set it up so God could do this. You've got to have faith for God to have something to work with. You've got to give God something we're not giving God anything. We're giving him a puddle of emotions. And it's okay to work from that point. But be prepared to answer by faith. And that's where he says God will provide. It's prediction. It's future. Your faith has got to talk here. And so you cannot find any indication where Abraham was tempted to disobey God. In the midst of the uncertainty, the challenge, the risk, their necessary components to this moment of faith. So they came to the place where God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there. At his age he built the altar. And he arranged the wood. And then that moment. And he bound Isaac. Here it is. The binding of Isaac. You're really going to go through with it. Where you're going to tie the guy up. So he binds his son Isaac. Now Isaac probably was at an age. He could take the senile old man. And push him away. And. Take the knife out of his hand and say, Dad, this is called crazy. <laughs> we don't have nursing homes yet, but you can't make this stuff up, as they say. I mean, it just, the picture's screaming at us. For Abraham, for Jesus, for us. So he binds him, the binding of Isaac right here, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. They wonder, was the wood lit? And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife, and he's going to slay his son. So, I would say that this is authentic faith, or utter stupidity and craziness. It does. Those two traits go hand in hand. That's what we were talking about, being a fool for Christ. There's such a line between crazy and faith. I looked at my father at times, and I thought he's a genius, or he's the craziest man ever born. You'll wrestle with this yourself, but it's not about you at this point. And the willingness on Abraham's part to offer Isaac is a unique point in history. They compare this to the Passover because the lamb that they gave, the Passover lamb's feet were tied when he was carried out to the temple to be a sacrifice. The same way the binding of Isaac when he was a sacrifice here. In some ways you can say Abraham was our substitute. He did for us. He proved it that man could do it. So you wouldn't have to. So I would say right now, say I'm going to enter into Abraham's faith. 
He's the father of my faith. <laughs> he believed God. It was counted to him righteousness. That's the breastplate of faith that I wear. So right now you could say, I'm going to enter into Abraham's faith. This is where I make an identification with what he was doing, that he was willing to do it. Today, you can at least start there before you make your own journey of it and just say, God, I'm willing. So it was the divine character to require readiness to sacrifice. Maybe it is the word readiness. Because we're talking about willingness. But that you say, God, I'm, I make myself ready to give you everything. That you completely say that you belong to the Lord. Kind of what he says when he says, here I am. Mm -hmm. It's a now. It's a now. I'm trying to give you any shortcuts I can give you. And you can say, I want the divine readiness on my life. That instead of dreading this all my life and thinking, boy, in my old age, I don't want to go there. I'm going to say, I'm going to do it right now. I'm telling you right now, all my loves in my life are on that altar to you. The readiness is taking place here on this day. Well, there's something clean and simple and pure about quick obedience. Yes. Because you don't allow time for the enemy to get into it, and you don't allow time for your reasoning to get into it. Mm -hmm. And you don't ask your wife. <laughs> Wait, <Not> what? <laughs> you don't ask your wife. <laughs> Abraham heard God, and he didn't go ask Sarah. Do you think that was God speaking to me? <laughs> She would have put him away. Well, all along it's Abraham hearing God. Mm -hmm. He did not question that he was hearing. Yeah. I'm telling you, he knew who his God was to such an extent. He never fell apart at any point in this. You don't see a wavering, a wobbling. You don't see any kind of second guessing himself. There can come a place with you, with your faith in the Lord that you have such assurance of who God is that you can't make a mistake, that you have such a, a commitment of knowing who the goodness of God is. And this is where I would caution you what she just said, that a partial obedience gets you in a lot of trouble. Being able to hear God tell you that, but not having the strength to answer yes to God. All those equations of only being partially obedient mixes it up. So at this point, you say to the Lord, I'm ready. Not because I relish anything that I've read or can even imagine myself there, but I do trust you. I do trust you. I trust you because you gave me my life to begin with, and you're the one who gave me my son's life. So I trust you. There's evidently something I don't know. I constantly use this with God when I'm working with him. That's why things that, you know, we've talked about that we've had to argue out. I'm dealing with the fact that when things don't make sense to me, there's something to God I'm not seeing. And I trust the God of all surprises because that's what takes place next. But, you love those buts. Verse 11, but. <laughs> but the angel of the Lord. Those buts in life. You know, I think when you're willing to do something, it changes the story. It takes the scrape out of it. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And again he says, here am I. But 
What does God do with a servant that never ever comes to this place, never aspires to, never will one time tell God I love you, I'm not going to compromise everything I have on earth for my earthly relationship. What do you do when God has someone that, that says, you're my Lord, but this is off the table? Remember our box that has, God, you couldn't require this of me. We've never understood that what God asks of us is for our own good. He's releasing you from the fear of loss and from the fear of punishment. You cannot serve God all your life being afraid that God will punish you. You have not been perfected in the love of God if you think somewhere deep down in there God has it in for you. This is the test. You can't always think that God is after you in a way. It's a mentality. It's our own evil mind playing tricks with us when we project our image on God rather than God's image on us. So at that point, at the point that he raised the knife, the angel screamed at him, called his name twice. And he says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't touch him, which is completely God. Don't lay a hand. You've gone far enough. Don't do anything to him, for I know that you fear God. Oh, is this our definition of the fear of God? Seeing that you have not withheld your son, Listen to the language again. You've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The thing you love the most, that's what's put on the altar, is that thing for you to know that you completely belong to the Lord, that you completely have laid everything in your life on the altar. You can see the point of the test. The test was not to plunge the knife. The test was to lift it. And then you see Abraham lifted his eyes to heaven and he looked so Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked behold such an unusual concept because of the way it reads and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him so he looks up and he sees what's behind him that's about how it goes down when you look up to God you see what you need it was a ram and he was caught in a thicket by his horns this is why it's so important to go to the right mountain. <laughs> so he was caught in one of those bushes they have there. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So there's the sacrifice. Pleasant little journey. Isaac will never forget this. <laughs> Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. And on the mount of the Lord... It will be provided. Jehovah Jireh. That's where we get the name. We say it so lightly, but Abraham said it cost a little bit more than <laughs> what you might have realized. And then the angel of the Lord in verse 15 called to Abraham a second time. And is this not God? So he speaks to him twice. And he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. By myself I have sworn. I remember a time where I was about to lose someone in my family. And I went out and I looked up into heaven. And I said, God, would you swear to me by yourself? Because there's no one higher for you to swear. Will you swear to me that you'll protect them and they'll not lose their faith? Y'all, there's an intimacy in a relationship with God that everything you need is right here. Everything. This is the place of provision. 
You just got to walk there and get there. So the second call from heaven is, By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you've not withheld your son, your only son. He's going to give him something. Verse 17. So Isaac's sacrifice was interrupted and the ram was inserted, substituted. I like God's interruptions. The Hebrew words, lay not your hand. He says, behold a ram. So lay not your hand, behold a ram. Those are great Hebrew words. I bet he tells Sarah, you'll never believe what happened today. <laughs> God tests us over the thing we love the most without harm. So the key words for understanding the story appear in verse 12. Now I know you are one who fears God. One who fears God. One who fears God. Are you known in heaven as one who fears God? Genesis 22 would be your foundational understanding for the biblical virtue of fearing God. You want to know what fearing God is? It's this. Just little old this. You know, we hear a hundred sermons on fear of the Lord, but we don't take this one in consideration, that this is fearing God. That is trusting God totally within the context of having a covenant relationship with him. If you don't understand covenant, you can't understand this. When you have covenant with someone, they completely belong to you, and you completely belong to them. You think you can do that with your son, but honestly, you can only do it with God. You can only do it with someone that can make up all the differences, the lacks, the whatever you need. Someone that's totally able to provide for you. God's the only one strong enough to truly have this kind of covenant relationship with. Even among people, you've got to have God as your partner to make up all the, the things that are missing. So this is why they blow the ram's horn, the shofar, on Rosh Hashanah. It's to say that it's the ram of Abraham was offered in the place of Isaac. And somehow they mix, it's odd, she was explaining this even last night. They mix their new year into the Passover. And it's the sounding of the shofar as a way to remind God of Abraham's total obedience. Now if that is not a Jewish way of thinking. C.S. Lewis made this point. He was talking about how Jews and Gentiles think differently. But a Jew will say, I must go to court. And a Gentile will say, I must go to court. A Gentile thinks, I hope I get mercy at court. But a Jew thinks, I hope I get retribution to make up to me for all the bad things I've been through. <laughs> and we think that way with God. As a Gentile, we think, oh, I need to go to court with God so I can get pardoned for all my bad sins. A Jew was like, I've got to go to court so I can get rewarded for all the good things I've done. <laughs> and this is what happens here. They blow the shofar because they're reminding God Abraham was totally obedient. <laughs> we blow the horn to remind ourselves of God's willingness to give Jesus. <laughs> it's such a difference. So they blow the shofar to say, man was willing, and we blow the shofar to say, God actually did it. In Jewish literature, Isaac started being portrayed as the prototype of a voluntary martyr. You know, what's funny about Isaac is the strange, they call it abbreviated story of Isaac. Like, what do we really know about Isaac? Why does the story not tell the emotions? I mean, we feel them. Father, where's the sacrifice? Where's, where's the ram? We're carrying everything up the mountain, but 
you don't see him going through therapy and counseling for trauma. I'm tied down. How tight? There's not one word about the feelings of the father. Not one word about the feelings of the son. Oh my, how different today is. If we told this story on Facebook. You know, I realize I hold my father in my hands. The way I tell his story, I could make him be a fool, a crazy man, or a genius. The child holds the description of the father in the hands. So it's only in understanding the father do you see his genius. And just like we would say it with Isaac's interpretation of his dad, Abraham, so it's your interpretation of who God is to the world. You're interpreting him. Either God's crazy or he makes perfect sense and he can put his finger on what's going to destroy your life if you don't hand it over and get perfect love put on top of it. Remember, what you compromise to keep, you'll lose. It's a principle. It set in when we fell in the garden, and we have to give it back to God. So here is the silence of the emotions. Listening to the story, the emotional part is very silent, but yet screaming. Same with you when you go through this. You look at the silence, and you see something that stands out on this magnificent day when I was asking the Lord, what shall we speak on today? And it's the day of resurrection. And this is the story of resurrection. In Genesis 22, 5, And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will return to you. Abraham was prophesying resurrection. Prophesying that with sacrifice always comes resurrection. I'm going to give you a little note in the Roman catacombs. They have the sacrifice of Isaac next to the raising of the dead of Lazarus. The pictures on the wall. There's shadowed the raising of the dead in the sacrifice. You've got to realize the devil steals in order to kill it, in order to destroy it. This is totally different. I've always thought it's the silence of the Bible that speaks the loudest. And you're right, there's context between the lines. Have you ever had the child that could read between the lines? Dad always told me, he said, Angie, your mom and I would spell things, but he said, you not only understood what we were spelling, but you could understand the concept between it. But I got it from him. And you will get it from your dad. If it's your Heavenly Father, you'll understand context. So by faith, Abraham... In Hebrews 11 says, When he was tested, he offered up Isaac on the altar. He who received the promises was ready to offer his one and only son, even though God had said to him, Through Isaac your offspring shall be reckoned. So when things contradict in your life and conflict, and it says Isaac will be how your offspring will be reckoned. So how can you kill what's going to be your offspring? It didn't make sense. So what did Abraham say? I must believe God. Instead of saying, this is a contradiction, I'm going to quit believing the faith and I'm no longer going to be a Christian, I found a discrepancy in the Bible. I found a discrepancy with you, God. The discrepancies are in the Bible to test your soul. The hardest sayings in the Bible are there that have the greatest nuggets of truth. The discrepancy of the Bible tests your heart if you're a person that's looking for a reason not to believe God, to doubt Him. Or if you're a person looking for a reason to believe Him, 
Look what Abraham did with the discrepancy. God had just prophesied to him, I'm not going to bless you through Ishmael. I'm going to give your chosen son through Sarah. That will be the son that makes you a father of all the nations. And now he's telling him, take him and give him as a sacrifice. When Abraham added one plus one, it equaled resurrection. But other people add one plus one, and it gives them a reason to tell God, see, I knew you were something was wrong with you. I knew you didn't exist. I knew you weren't there. I knew you're not for me. And then you say, their love's not perfected. What's being perfected in you is your love. And it said, so Abraham reasoned. This is called sanctified reasoning. All the other stuff you reason takes you away from God. But verse 19, Hebrews 11, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And in a sense, it was at that moment that he reasoned it. He received Isaac back from death. In other words, Isaac was raised from the dead the minute he reasoned God is able to do it. Like you can receive by faith something before you actually receive it. Like Abraham already had it in his heart of the resurrection is why he didn't fall apart when he told Isaac, God will provide. Did you know you can get so close to God you can almost predict what he's going to do? But some people know the acts of God and some people know the ways of God. And when you get old, you should be more trusting of God, not less. And I can almost tell you what God's going to do because I know him. If I could do it with my father and tell you I know how he's going to maneuver this situation, I know what he's going to do, how much more shall I do with my heavenly father who I'm studied and understood? You'll get to a place, even your mind, it'll make more sense for you to trust God than not to. This is a beautiful place. Everybody, they're so hung up on all our failures, but I'm telling you there's a pinnacle on Mount Moriah that you can actually believe God so much that you can tell what he's going to do before he does it. Have you had that experience? Have you had that place where you knew what God was going to do? Sometimes I've been able to call it. But it's a secret between me and God because I know what he's going to do. But I keep it quiet. It's not the saying of it. It's just me having the faith to go ahead and say, I'll take that next step. God will provide. So in the midst of this, when he received him back, we see here the resurrection, the glory of this day, that Abraham saw resurrection. He didn't see death. And then so God gives a promise. He gives a statement here. As the text says, because you've done this, I will bestow my blessing upon you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore. You can't do any kind of sacrifice that God doesn't bless you more than what you do. Like God outgives you. You were scared you were going to lose one and God said, I'm going to give you so many sons. When you get to heaven, Abraham, as far as you look, every believer will be your son. When he started it, all believing came from him. Can you imagine? We're holding on to one when he wants us to hand him the one like the bread and the fishes, and break it, and he will multiply it into the multitudes. If you cling to one, you'll end up with one, unless the devil kills it. 
But if you give it back to God in his hands, he can bless it and multiply it. Abraham had said to Isaac, God will provide a lamb. And the word provide is that which appears in this context that the realm was the provision. So we have the climax of the story rewarded. And so we will end with this. Paul quotes the very words of this chapter when he says, He that spared not his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. The sacredness of life. Some people see it as the craziness of God. But when you really believe and know who God is, it's actually a story about the sacredness of God. Not the concept that God would act like a primitive God asking you to sacrifice something in an evil way. You see that God actually was taking life and multiplying it. The sacredness of life, actually it took this to save our lives. For if you lose your life, you gain it. The thing which bothers you the most, this is screaming at you, put it on the altar. Because God is the only one that can take what you love and protect it and multiply it. Amen. We have finished the binding of Isaac. <laughs>